Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we worship and we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came, that he died for us, that he rose again on the third day victorious so that we may know your grace, so that we may be in a relationship with you. Father, I just pray this morning that you would stir our hearts, that, Lord, you would encourage us, and that, Lord, you would equally challenge us to live a life that is pleasing and indeed serving the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. The book of Revelation. Half of you probably want to run out of the room right now. <laughs> and some of you probably will be a bit uncomfortable because the book of Revelation makes people nervous. Some people don't see it as being at all relevant to their daily lives. I mean, you know, in this 21st century, how on earth is the book of Revelation relevant to a life filled with iPhones, filled with getting to work on time? All these types of things seem a bit distant from Revelation. Some of you might think it's a bit scary, a bit gloomy, a bit... Hmm, it's a bit scary to read because it's talking about things that are yet to come. And that's a bit scary. Sometimes people think that only Christians who are obsessed with Bible prophecy talk about Revelation and that they're always getting their newspaper under one arm and their Bible under the other and they're trying to match the two constantly. But these cliches, are they really fair? Or are we missing out as a church, as a church globally, on some of the most amazing teaching that Jesus gives to his church the final account that Jesus gives to his church to prepare us for what is to come. So how does it all work? And, and who wrote Revelation and when was it written? Just a few brief points to start us off, because it's important to have context when you read any book of the Bible. Revelation 1, 1 to 3. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Note that phrase very carefully. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. First of all, notice this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is full of prophetic language. It is full of things that sometimes at first glance look difficult to understand. But actually, it's meant to be clear. <laughs> and it's meant to clarify who Jesus Christ is to his church. So rather than obscuring Jesus, rather than making him more difficult to understand, rather than making us confused, the book of Revelation shows us Jesus. It shows us what he has to say about himself in his glorified state to us, his people. Okay, so we know what is the Revelation, very simply. Who wrote it? Well, again, Revelation 1.4 makes it really clear. This letter is from John, who we know as the Apostle John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So we know the, the, the subject, we know who wrote it. How about why we should read it? We kind of covered that slightly in verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1. There is a specific promise in, the, in Revelation that those who read, those who take in, those who do what it says in Revelation and live in the light of those truths will in fact be blessed. 
And actually, this is the only book of the Bible that promises that specific blessing. So rather than running away, we should run towards it, like every other part of Scripture, and say, this is the whole counsel of God. And we want to hear what you have to say to us. And indeed, there is a specific promise of a reward for those believers that take it on board. 2 Timothy 4.8, Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me only, but also to all those who love his appearing. So if we read Revelation with expectancy, knowing that the Lord is coming back for his church, then there is a specific promise given to us that we will walk closely with the Lord and then in one day we will be rewarded specifically for that. When was it written? Well, there's loads of stuff out there about when it was written, but I'm just going to tell you to keep it simple. It was written after 90 AD, probably about 95 AD, at the end of the reign of somebody called Domitian, who was a Roman emperor. And that's important because all the stuff in Jerusalem that had already happened, the temple had already been destroyed, the Jews had already been expelled from the land, and this was talking about what was to come after that. It wasn't explaining what happened in Israel in 70 AD, it was explaining what was to come. It was futuristic, that's a fancy way of saying yet future. And then finally, what is the structure of the book? And then we'll get to the seven churches and then finally to Ephesus. Well, Jesus gives us a structure himself, thankfully, because <laughs> it would be difficult to come up with a structure otherwise. Revelation 1.19. This is in the New King James uh, Version, this particular translation, because it's a bit easier in that, in that translation, this verse. Write the things which you have seen, number one, the things which are, number two, and the things which will take place after this. Okay? So we've got three distinct phases or descriptions of the structure of the book. Write the things which you have seen, I think correlates very well to chapter one. So as you read Revelation chapter one, you see and you are John is describing the things that are seen. And the things which are covers chapters two and three, the things which are right now in the seven churches, because of course the book was written to the seven churches. So the things which John has seen in chapter one, the things which are chapters two and three, and then finally, the things which will take place after this, okay? So it's looking ahead to the future. It's looking ahead not only to what is to come for the church, but more importantly, what is to come for Israel and Jesus' kingdom on the earth. What about the seven churches? So we have the context of the book. What about the seven churches? Why are they important? Well, you might have already noticed that this book is the direct observations of Jesus Christ to seven distinct churches. Now, is there anywhere else in the Bible that is actually directly dictated by Jesus Christ what to say to the writer? The Holy Spirit inspires the writers of every other book of the, of the Bible, hence it's without error, hence it is still God's word. But I've never seen the exact dictation of the words by Jesus, by Jesus Christ in any other book. This is the testimony of our Lord and Saviour, the one that we sung about this morning, whom we love. And therefore, we're to take note. And therefore, we're to take note really with open ears. Because, as it says, at the end of each of the seven church letters, listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to 
the churches. We're to treasure the truths that we find in God's word in our hearts, and we're to live in the light of those truths, and we're to get them. When, when, when things are difficult, we're to take them from our memory bank and say, Lord, I'm willing to live this out today. I don't want to just know this. I want to live it. And I want to be brought closer and closer into your will and where you want me to be in the light of these truths. And what does each church represent? Again, there's myriads of stuff out there, hypothesizing various ways of interpreting revelation, some kind of minimizing revelation, some going too far. I would just say that there are seven churches, literal churches. There are seven literal churches that Jesus is writing to, but they reflect more broadly some of the patterns you see in every church across the entire of the church age. Some churches have lost their first love. Some churches have uh, taken on false teaching. Some churches are suffering faithfully for the Lord. And we see a bit of each of these churches in every church. In every Christian, we see bits of these truths that we see in the letters to the seven churches. So they are for us. And as the great physician, Jesus Christ, looks out at his church, he has the diagnostic skills better than anybody else to say, I love you guys, but there's some things that you're not quite getting right. And that can be scary when we look back and think, oh, hang on, Jesus is, point Jesus is saying there's something not quite right. But actually, it's good, isn't it? Because it, we have time to repent. We have time to turn our eyes back to Jesus and live as disciples, joyfully living for him in the light of all he has done for us. Okay, so we've kind of covered a bit of context. Revelation 2 Verse 1, and we start the church at Ephesus. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We have a church in Ephesus. So the first question in my mind is, where, where on earth is Ephesus? <laughs> Why have I not heard of Ephesus before? So Ephesus is in Turkey. Okay? It's in modern-day Turkey. And it isn't really a city today. It's just ruins, actually. It used to be one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire. It was estimated to have a quarter of a million people living there, about a fourth of the size of Birmingham. Wow. It's just ruins now. But that's what Ephesus was. It was this massive city. It was proud of its pagan origins. It was a highly sexualized society. Indeed, there was a temple to Diana where there was temple prostitutes there. And part of the worship to Diana was that practice. So it was a city that very much was the opposite of what Christ was saying the church needed to be. And that was difficult for the church. There are some parallels today. The church is lived, called to live faithfully in a society that increasingly does not want to listen to Jesus Christ. When did the church start? Well, we find in Acts 18 to 19. Have a look at it later if you want. The Apostle Paul comes along, and we see Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos in there as well, and the church is established. And then for two whole years, Paul teaches the word daily in the school of Tyrannus. It's like a theology degree all in one with the Apostle Paul himself. And he goes through with the Jews and with the Gentiles all the truths of God's word. All the truths that the church needed to hear and understand to live faithfully. 
But Paul didn't hide away. He kept going daily. He kept teaching daily. He didn't give in to the, the surrounding world, the secular world. He taught faithfully the truths of Jesus Christ. And as a consequence, this church was thriving. And indeed, in Ephesians 1, 15 to 16, it says, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith, so there was strong faith, in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. This was a church that loved Jesus, that loved each other, and that wanted to reach the world for Jesus Christ. It wasn't sitting there on their laurels. It wasn't comfortable. It was doing the work that God had called them to do. After Paul, we find Timothy, and we've read through and taught 1 and 2 Timothy recently in the the midweek meetings. And Timothy pastored there for many years. And then we have, after Timothy, John, the Apostle John, who himself comes along and pastors the church for about 30 years. And an interesting fact, uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, goes along with him, we think. Because remember who looked after Mary? It was John. And there are early church accounts saying that Mary went along with John to Ephesus. So this is a blessed church. It had some of the first apostles. It had Jesus' mother there. It, was, it looked great from the outside. It looked great from the outside. Who was the letter written to? Well, it says the angel of the church in Ephesus. Which at face value, you think, oh, an angel. You think actually it's an angel who's the, who it's been written to. But actually, if you look at the Greek, it just means messenger. And there's a bit of a progression in Revelation. Jesus, angel, John to the angel of the church. It's far better to translate it as pastor or prophet over the church because you go from heaven to earth and the word messenger can be translated as angel or indeed a human being, depending on the context. So I think this book was written to the pastor of the church in Ephesus or maybe the prophet who was indeed over the church in Ephesus at that time. We're getting there with context. Who was this message given by of course it was jesus christ revelation 2 1 this is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands so you've got this image of the deliverer of the message walking amongst lampstands holding something in his seven in his right hand what's he holding he's holding seven stars and what are the lampstands well we see that they are explained in Revelation 1.20, as the seven churches. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in your right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels, or the pastors, or the messengers, of these seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So again, everything that's um, imagery, or everything that looks a bit confusing to start with in the book of Revelation is explained in the book of Revelation or the rest of the Bible. There's nothing that's unexplained, which is great because otherwise you could get running away with yourself with your imagination. So we know that the lampstands are the churches. And what does a lampstand do? It emits light, doesn't it? It, it emits light to a dark world. That's what a lampstand does. And that's really familiar language. Matthew 5 14 to 16 tells us what the church should be doing. You are the light of the world. 
like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for those all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So the church is the lampstand that emits the light to the world that shows Jesus Christ is the Saviour, is the Lord. Okay? So that's clear. We know who the lampstands are. How about the seven stars? Well, we've seen it already explained, haven't we? The seven stars are the seven pastors or the seven messengers to those churches. And Jesus has them in his right hand. I think this is my right hand. <laughs> has them in his right hand. And he's got hold of them really, really tightly. Do we, can we think of anywhere else in the Bible that talks about God having um, people in there? in his hand really tightly, I can. John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Hallelujah. <laughs> this is amazing. This is discussing or describing us as believers. No one can catch them away from me for my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else and no one can snatch them from the father's hand. So we have this double grip on all believers. We have Jesus Christ and the Father, and by the way, the Spirit in the believer, holding on to believers. There is nothing that can take us out of his hand. Isn't that amazing in this world, where things constantly try and distract us and depress us and get us down? So in Revelation, we have the description that the pastors are in the hand of the Lord, but more broadly, when you do a bit of comparison, you will see that all believers are in the hand of Jesus Christ and indeed the Father and the Spirit by the way is also in us every person every part of the Trinity secures us in Christ the Lord has us the Lord has given us eternal life and we should be thankful for that wonderful gift of grace and when we mess up and when we do things we shouldn't and when we go our own way we don't come out the hand Indeed, as the prodigal son tells us, the father's waiting with open arms for us to return. And notice what Christ is described as doing in verse 1. He's described as walking around, walking between the lampstands. Now, is this just a gentle meander that we were all doing during lockdown? Or is this a purposeful walking amongst the lampstands to actually see what's going on? I would suggest the latter. Jesus Christ is watching his church lovingly, trying to guard his church against internal and external error, against doctrinal error, against people falling out with each other, which, you know, we're all human, sometimes that happens. But he's watching, and he wants us to love each other, and he wants us to love him, and he wants us to repent when we get stuff wrong. He's not just sitting there shooting the breeze. <laughs> he is sitting there watching guiding, loving us, showing us the way. Praise the Lord, because if we, I didn't have my way shown, I'd be in the ditch in five minutes. The Lord is good all of the time. And notice the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, as he walks amongst the seven lampstands. Notice he isn't clothed. As Pastor Wan said a few weeks ago, I find it fascinating, the parallels. He isn't clothed in his baby outfit, his swaddling clothes. He isn't clothed as the one on the cross. He is clothed in high priestly garments. 
okay? He is clothed with his full robe on, his belt on, of the order of Melchizedek. He is our intercessor right now in heaven. You know what? Sometimes we get this, this image, don't we, that Jesus Christ was a little baby, um, and then he died and he rose again. Of course, that is the source of our gospel. But right now, he's in heaven interceding for us. So when we have a difficult day, we can go to the high priest in heaven and say, Lord Jesus, I really need you. And he's in his priestly garments waiting, ready to intercede for us. I find that amazing. I find it amazing that Jesus Christ in heaven sees what's going on and is ready to, ready to show us, to guide us, and to allow us and indeed show us what it means to live in the light of resurrection, his resurrection. So Christ is speaking to the pastor at Ephesus. We see he was the pastor. So John was the, John was the former pastor, by the way. Isn't that interesting? John, who's writing this book, used to be the pastor at Ephesus until relatively recently. So that's an interesting dynamic that we've not even discussed yet as we approach this letter. And then Jesus makes us a variety of observations as he explains to the church what is going on. And as we see, in most of the churches, if not all of them, there's a pattern that is held to. Generally, there's observation. Jesus, first of all, says who he is. He then observes what is good. He then observes what may be improved. And then he reminds believers that those who overcome, uh, in a particular context, have rewards. So, what does he see in the church of Ephesus that is good? Okay, so verses 2, 3, and 6. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. And, but this I have in, in your favor. Obviously, I'm just skipping a few verses ahead because I'm giving it a structure. Um, you hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. So there are many positives here in the church of Ephesus. Verse 2, I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. Christ sees their works. He sees their works. Their patient endurance or their persistence in doing good works in the face of difficulty. But does it mean that their good works get them into heaven? Does it mean that we need to do so much to have Christ accept us? No. Because the Bible is consistent with itself. There is nowhere in scripture that contradicts each other. You've just got to look at the context, who it's written to, and what the purpose is, and you suddenly realise there is no contradictions in scripture. Jesus Christ has done it all. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died, again, he died again. He rose again on the third day for our salvation, for our forgiveness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, probably one of my most favorite verses in the Bible. God saved you by his grace when you believed. Not when you did loads of good stuff. When you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is Wait for it. Not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. It's, it's emphatic. We're not saved by our works. So where does works come into it in, in, this, in this letter? In the scriptures. Works come by abiding. 
Works come by sitting at the feet of Jesus every day and saying, Jesus, I just want to serve you today. What do you want me to do? What conversations do you want me to have? What, where do you want me to read? And, I'll, and then I'll read it. Who do you want me to pray for? You see, when we abide, when we live close to Jesus, when we you know, are at his feet, then we are fruitful for him. John 5, uh, 4 to 5 gives us the recipe, the ultimate recipe for fruit bearing, for works in the believer. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit it is, if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in ye, me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There is the recipe. And it's really interesting that the church in Ephesus is given the instructions in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 about salvation, about being made right with the Lord by faith alone. And then in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, in the right order, we get given why we do good works. What is the purpose? Ephesians 2, 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do all good things he planned for us long ago. And that word masterpiece is fascinating. It means where is tapestry. Have you ever been to like, you know, a museum somewhere and you've seen these like huge rugs or tapestries that are just beautifully adorned? Uh, I saw one many years ago when I went to France to a Norman castle. It was just gorgeous. And the detail was amazing. And you just think, how many hours, how many months, how many years did the artist spend making this tapestry? What does that say about Jesus? It means he has things for you that he's planned long ago. It means that he spent many, many, many hours, days, months, years. He's even spent eternity thinking how he can use you for his kingdom, use you as an example of his grace to those that need to know Jesus Christ. You see, you might be feeling this morning that you haven't got much worth. You might feel a bit down. You might think, what was the point in coming to church this morning? The point is that we can be prepared to go and be a witness to him so that we can go and spread the love of Christ to others. And Jesus Christ wants us to know that he values us. Okay? He values us and that he has things in store for us if we just sit at his feet and listen. The motivation for good works is not about earning God's forgiveness. It is about praising the Lord and saying, Lord, you have done it all. I don't deserve it. What on earth? <laughs> what on earth makes me deserve this? I don't know and I do not deserve it. But you are the one that gave me everything that I need. And I'm going to give you the glory as a result. You see, if we do good works because we need to please others, Matthew 6, 1 to 2 makes it pretty clear that we've already received our reward by getting the adulation of men. Watch out, don't, be, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogue and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they get. But we know from 1 Corinthians 3, we know from 2 Corinthians 5.10, that when you serve the Lord because you want to honor the Lord, rewards will be given later when we go to be with him following the rapture okay so what was the series of commendations that we saw we say i know you don't tolerate evil people 
You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars, but this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. You can kind of classify this as one group of interesting things that, that the Ephesians were doing. They were spotting false teachers and not listening to them, is what they were doing. They saw that teaching of the word of God can be easily corrupted by false teachers and by false motivations. And they were testing them against the word of God. They were using the word of God as their armor, and they were using this to identify who was teaching the truth and who was not. And they didn't tolerate, that word is fascinating. They didn't tolerate people who were teaching false doctrine. It's a really interesting word, tolerate, because it means you can kind of just accept it. You can kind of just bring them close and it's fine. You can tolerate that. John 16, 12 uses a similar word of the disciples before the resurrection when he says, I still have many things to say to you disciples, but you cannot bear them now. The disciples couldn't yet understand. They couldn't take in. They couldn't endure what Christ was about to say to them because the Holy Spirit hadn't yet entered them. They were still distracted by their position in the future kingdom. And likewise, the church in Ephesus could not tolerate, could not endure, could not take in the false teachings because they knew Christ. They knew the truth. And when you have an appetite for the truth, you ain't got the appetite for falsehood. So the, the challenge here is to fill ourselves with Jesus Christ, is to fill ourselves with the good food, the good food, the bread that comes on a daily basis, the word of God, to listen to teachers that are teaching us the truth. Because then we won't have an appetite for falsehood. We won't endure it. We won't, we won't take it in and go, oh yeah, that's cool, that's really nice. We'll say, what is this cheap food that I'm being served up that is not prime rib from the Lord, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Sorry to use food analogies, but it does, it does help. <laughs> and I'm hungry. <laughs> John, 1 John 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who speaks, uh, claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 14. These people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I am not surprised, says Paul to the Corinthian church in this instance, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. When someone says to you, I'm an apostle, I'm a preacher, I teach the Bible, I really encourage you to test what they're saying against the word of God. And if they're saying something that does not marry up with the word of God, do not endure them. Because that's what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. Do not endure these people who are telling you falsehood. You shall know them by their fruits, is what Matthew says. And you will see in the lives of people who are not teaching the truth things that are not right. And notice then verse 6, carrying on through the epistle. Jesus says he commends the Ephesian church for not tolerating, for not taking in the false teachings of somebody called 
the Nicolaitans. And there is great debate who the Nicolaitans are. And I'm not going to get into any sort of in-depth comparison of views because we'd be here for ages. I think it's safe to say there are two main views. The first is some, the, the Nicolaitans were people who just said, do what you want whenever you want, which doesn't really marry up with scripture. The second view is that the Nicolaitans, the word Nicolaitan tells you who they are. <laughs> Nikos means conqueror in Greek. Laity means the people. So it could be the Nicolaitans were, the, were, were teaching that the people needed to be subservient, needed to get under the foot of those that were in charge of the church, which is clearly preposterous. Jesus Christ took away any distance between the Father and us. The curtain was torn in two. We don't need a priesthood anymore because Jesus Christ is our priest. And indeed, we're called to be a priesthood. <laughs> we're called to minister unto the Lord ourselves. So we don't need people who are priests over us. We just need people who love the Lord, who are willing to teach the truth of the word of God. And obviously there are, there are different offices and different gifts that, that the Lord gives us. So, you know, it's good to, it's, it's fundamental to have a pastor and elders in the church who can guide us and show us, but they're still the same people that we are. We're all one. We're all one in Christ. We have all the same value. We're just called to different things. We don't need to go and confess our sins to a priest in order to be forgiven. That's, I think, what Jesus is pointing out here. And of course, we know in the early church, very early on, there began to be this distinct class of priesthood started again. And Jesus says, don't go there. Don't go there. Trust in me. Trust in my words. Listen to those that teach you the word and try them against the word of God. And together as a church, with a pastor and elders and deacons and everybody else, serve the Lord together as one. And then finally, very briefly, verse 3. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. It just gives that sense, doesn't it, of they continue to be faithful. They continued even in the midst of uncertainty even in the midst of difficulty, to serve the Lord because he was worthy. And Pastor Tom has been recently talking through the armour of God. And, you know, we need to take on the armour of God. We need to believe that Jesus Christ is our armour and live in the light of that when tough stuff gets difficult because it is in the armour of God that we find our security in that sense. You know, when things come against us, we put on Jesus Christ using the words of Romans 13 and we stay there and we and secure in him. Is something happening this morning where you feel you've been attacked? Do you feel that you're up against it, that you're up against the, up against the wall and that situations or circumstances are attacking you? Put on the whole armour of God and let Jesus Christ be your victory. He's already victorious. Live in the light of that victory. And then we've seen the good stuff. Then Jesus comes to talk about things that could get a bit better. And this is hard. And when we read about this, it, will, it certainly affected me greatly. I thought, oh my word, I am so guilty in many respects of this. Lord, help me to understand this first and foremost, because losing your love for the Lord, losing your freshness and your sharpness is serious. Revelation 2, 4 to 5. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. 
Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Have you ever witnessed uh, maybe a relationship in your life, maybe one of your friends, your own relationships, that started off really passionately? Maybe your friend met this person and they fell madly in love and then a few years later it all started to go a bit south and there was no affection anymore and it was just routine. Things started to stagnate. And of course we are Christ's bride, future bride. We are Christ's future bride and Christ is the groom in waiting. And that relationship with Jesus needs to be one of love. Jesus loves us, and we need to love him back in the light of that love. It is undeserved. It is unconditional love that Jesus gives to us. And in the light of those things, we should be wanting to serve him and to honor him. We should have a hunger for God's word because it is his word after all. We should want to say to the Lord, whatever you want, Lord, I'm going to go and do it, whatever the cost. And that's really hard. Don't get me wrong, it's really hard. Discipleship is not necessarily easy. But in Ephesus, Jesus saw that their love was not as it first was. In the New King James, it says they had departed. They had chosen to walk away. It wasn't a drift. It was an actual choice to kind of go away from Jesus for a time, to do something else. Their groom was waiting, but the, bri but the bride decided to go away for a time and do something a bit different. This was a, a distancing of both heart and mind from Jesus Christ. And the word fallen is an interesting word because it, it means withered. It's kind of withering away. And of course, we're called to be fruitful, aren't we? We're called to, to abide, and when we abide, the vine grows strong and the fruit comes. But when we don't abide, there's a withering. You see, the Ephesian church had it all right when it came to doctrine. The Ephesian church was active, as we've seen. It was doing loads of good stuff for Jesus Christ. It had a spiritual heritage that most churches could even dream of. It had Paul, it had Timothy, it had John as their pastors. And the Ephesian church stood against persecution. But it's one thing to be active for Jesus. But without love, it is nothing. Without love, it is as good as worthless. And we know this from one of the most famous passages in Scripture, written, by the way, about a marriage. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, or is often read, about, read in marriages, isn't it? It's often talked about frequently in marriages. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I did not love others, I would have gained nothing. 
How is your love for Jesus Christ this morning? How is our love for Jesus Christ as a church this morning? Was it a chore to get up for church? Of course, we're all tired. We'll be tired after the last two years. But was your heart wanting to be there? Is it a chore to pray? Is it something that we tick off a list? Or is it our desire to be with the Lord and to pray with him and to talk to him? Is it a chore to get our Bible open and just to spend a few minutes with the Lord? Does our heart want to do it? Or is it just an inconvenience? These diagnostic signals give us a clue, don't they, to our heart and where our heart is. And they're hard. And I find myself praying this week, Lord, this is me. My heart isn't always where it needs to be. I find it difficult to open the Bible sometimes. I struggle. But I know that when I abide in him and when I remember who I am in him, he is the one that will lift me up again and allow me to continue the walk that he's called us to walk in. It isn't us trying harder. It is just us sitting at the feet of Jesus and saying, Lord, only by you and only through you can I do this. We are loved. We are secure. We're in his right hand. We are there. Nothing can remove us. Our position is secure in Christ. It is just remembering who we are in him and living in the light of that that will change things. And of course, Jesus tells us quite plainly, turn back to me and do the works you did at first. And what are those works? They're simply what you did when you came to Christ first. They might have been your love for the Lord's word. They might have been your love for prayer. They might have been that... Um, Slightly embarrassing zealousness sometimes when we look back and we went to tell people about Jesus in the most awkward way. But we wanted to tell people about Jesus because we love Jesus and we realized, oh my word, the creator of the universe loves me and died for me and rose again on the third day so that I might know forgiveness. Why do we feel awkward when people are you know, passionately sharing, the, sharing Jesus? I suggest it's because we don't like to be uncomfortable. And of course, there are ways of doing it, but we should bless them and pray for them <laughs> when they do it, because they're, they're doing what the Lord wants them to do. And it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter if you make a complete mess when you have it, when you're sharing the gospel. It doesn't matter. You know why? Because Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful. Jesus' gospel, Jesus' truth does not need defending by us. The Lord is a lion, a roaring lion coming back as the lion of Judah one day. He defends his own truth. And he, through the Holy Spirit, can reveal the truth of God, even when we make a complete mess of it, as I frequently do, <laughs> to people who need to know who Jesus Christ is and why he came and why they need to believe in him. It's an interesting question. Did the Ephesian church listen to this? Well, we think they did for a time. Indeed, the Ephesian church for a few hundred years seemed to be thriving, actually, after this letter was written. And they seemed to be known for their love for their neighbor. They seemed to be known for their love for Christ. And they seemed to be known for their love of the truth. Indeed, one of the first church councils was in Ephesus <laughs> because they wanted to get it clear 
what was being taught in the churches and making sure it was in accordance with the word of God. But after a while, things went south in that phrase. They went south and they didn't no longer love the Lord as they had done once before. And of course, today we find no Ephesian church. We don't even find the city of Ephesus apart from ruins. Because Jesus says, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Now, that doesn't mean your individual salvation. We've already seen very clearly you're in the hands of God. You're in the hands of Jesus. But what it does mean is that the church might be removed. If the individual church is not loving the Lord and serving the Lord, as the Lord who is the head of the church wants it to happen, he might come and remove the church one day. And that's his prerogative. We need a church today that wants to obey the Lord because they love the Lord. We need a church today that loves Jesus Christ above everything else in our lives. And that doesn't mean you, you don't love your family. It doesn't mean you don't love your children. It doesn't mean you don't you know, love everybody that God has given you. But it means your affection primarily, and, uh, primarily is for Jesus Christ. And out of that affection comes everything else. Verse 7, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious or in different translations who is an overcomer, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Every time Dave or Juan or Tom is away, we'll be going through with, hopefully, Lord willing, with myself, a different church. And we'll see the pattern that is taught through the seven churches. And this overcoming victorious thing is at the end of each letter, which means Jesus really wants us to take note <laughs> of what is being said. He wants us to hear. He wants us to listen. And he wants us to live in the light of what he is saying. And there are two ways you can take this, and I think both are valid. The first is we're all victorious and we're all overcomers in Jesus Christ because we are in Christ and he has overcome the world. He has overcome death. He has overcome sin and he has defeated the enemy forever. That is the first way to take it. The second way to take it, and I think this is equally valid, is that as believers, when we abide in Christ, when we're faithful to Jesus Christ, we overcome the difficulties we have in life and we overcome those things that come against us by his testimony, okay? By him and by what he has done. I think both are valid and both have different strengths to that. But it's interesting that the, 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 the second argument, I think is interesting because why would he tell us to overcome if we'd already overcome? So there's, an in, there's, there's a calling of the church to faithfulness in the midst of difficulty. Otherwise, he would never have said it. Or he might have said it because of point one. Either way, overcoming requires us to abide in Christ. Overcoming requires us to hear and to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And in Ephesus, they'd lost their first love. Don't, Jesus says, do not lose your first love. 
like any good engagement before the wedding. Spend time together, future bride and groom. Talk to each other. Go on adventures together. Follow each other. And in this particular context, we follow Jesus because he is our Lord. We go where he wants us to go. We do what he wants us to do. We do the first works that we did when we first believed. Ultimately, the life of discipleship, according to this letter, is actually very simple. It's about loving Jesus Christ. It's about loving Jesus Christ. And if we haven't got love for Jesus, as an, an, and as an extension, love for others in the church, in the body of Christ, who Christ himself has, has bought with his blood, then it's worth nothing. It's worth absolutely nothing. It doesn't provide an effective witness of what Christ has done to the world. All it does is give the world opportunities to point the finger and say, well, they follow Jesus, but look at them. Okay? This morning, let us examine our hearts. And if we need to repent, let us repent. And repent doesn't mean this grand gesture. It just means to change our mind, to turn back to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've messed up again for the millionth time. And Lord, I just want to live in your ways. We turn our focus from what we're, what we're looking at to Jesus. And we say, Jesus, my focus is now on you again. And it's interesting that there's a, there's a famous hymn that I just want to read the, the final two lines of, written by somebody called Robert Robertson, who wrote this hymn in the 17th century. And Robert Robertson wandered for a long time. He wrote the hymn, and then he spent many years away from the Lord. And then one day, it is reported that one day he was in a carriage with somebody, and somebody was singing his song. <laughs> To themselves and he heard it and he was cut to the heart and went oh, I've forgotten Jesus and turned back now if that's true or not I don't know but it's, it's written about in a testimony book so you know we believe it's true what is the words of the song prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love take my heart oh take and seal it with thy spirit from above. This morning, let us remember those words and the words of Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. And let our wandering hearts that are prone to wander be sealed afresh with the spirit so that we may indeed live for Christ and live in the light of his love for us. And maybe this morning, somebody in this room has not accepted Jesus Christ. Maybe this is all a bit circumspect and, well, what, what's he talking about? Because I'm talking about discipleship at the moment. I'm talking about living in the light of what Christ has done. Maybe you've never accepted Christ before. Maybe you're in a position this morning where you don't know what forgiveness of sins means or you haven't turned to Jesus and said, Lord, I messed up. Lord, I'm a sinner. I need you. Again, I need you to forgive my sins. I need you to cleanse me of my sins so that I may walk in a right relationship with you. 
If that is you this morning, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to realize that we need Jesus Christ. And the gospel is not difficult. John 3.16, the verse that I read when I became a believer in Jesus Christ. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his, only one, his, his one and only son. So that everyone, everyone, not, not some people, everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Maybe you've come to church this morning with somebody who is a believer, but you're not a believer. Speak to them. Come to one of the church leaders. Pray with us. We invite you to know Christ today because I guarantee you it is the only way you're going to survive this world and it is the only way we're going to know the creator of the universe, to be in the right relationship with him. Faith in Christ is the best and the only way to live this life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, it was challenging this morning to go through those verses. And Lord, you know, there are, I'm guilty of losing my first love at times. And Father, I repent. And Lord, as we look to you, as we pray as a church that we would turn back to you, Lord, I pray that you would just minister with through your Holy Spirit, through your grace, Lord, these truths, that Lord, we would be quick to turn to you, that we would be quick to repent if there is a need of repentance. And that, Lord Jesus, we would live in the light of your love. We would live in the light of the truths that we sung about this morning as we worship you in song. And, Father, I just pray that if anybody in this room does not yet know Jesus, that they would accept his free gift of salvation today. And that, Lord Jesus, they would be rejoicing in the heavens for a single person that comes to you, even today. Help us, Lord, as we live for you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.